Good morning. It's good to be here worshiping with all of you, to be gathered as the visible church of Christ. That's so valuable to be together as God's people. And if you don't know who I am, my name is David. I'm one of the pastors here and a member of the preaching team. So that means Steve and I get to trade back and forth and generally work our way through books of the Bible. And today we are in the book of Joshua. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 1. And I've entitled this message, Brave Faithfulness. But before we get into that, um, I guess I have just a brief prayer request. You know, when I graduated in 2018 and then got married soon after, Dorothy and I, ever since then, we've been renting just down the road. And it's been really cool to be five minutes away from the church. Really cool. Um, I have a conviction that a pastor should live like his people and with his people. Uh, and so my prayer request, something I'd like you guys to pray for, is we're starting to look at buying a house again. We're starting to kind of dip our toes into that. We've been paying, oh, I've been paying for school for the past several years. Um, and we're finally getting, I finally made my last payment for my master's degree. So we're looking at that. Yeah, that's an exciting thing. I got to graduate in December, Lord willing. Um, but we're looking at that, and the housing market here is insane. Uh, just insane. Uh, there's a lot of dysfunction. Uh, there's a lot of stuff I'm not going to rant about right now. Mortgage rates are insane. So we need a miracle because I don't want to have to move 40 minutes north of here just to afford a home because then I'm going to be like an hour away from some of you. I don't want to do that. So please be praying for that. We need a miracle. Speaking of which, so this past week I was looking at mortgage rates and I was contacting banks. And banks are so centralized now, you have to call like one number to finally get to a local office where you can talk to a loan officer. And so I was making all these phone calls and I'm talking to these big corporations, these mega banks, and you gotta call this and I'll put you on hold, we're gonna send you over to here. And then my phone call gets dropped and I gotta try to do it again. And at one point they were like, oh, don't worry, someone's gonna call you back. And based on your response to that statement, I think most of you know when a big corporation says, we're going to call you back, do you trust it? No, you don't. And it was a nice juxtaposition because that same day, I have a friend named Josh who used to work at a bank. And that same day, back and forth, I would get information and then I'd share it with him and he'd kind of deconstruct it and tell me what was going on. And so he was calling me throughout the day. I was calling him throughout the day. And at one point I texted him some information and he said, hey, I'm on a phone call with someone. I will call you back soon. Now, when my friend Josh, who's willing to spend a great deal of his time to help me through this process, when he says, I'm going to call you back, that's something I can trust because he's one of my close friends. He's proven himself time and time again. The clear promises of someone trustworthy produce confidence. The clear promises of someone trustworthy produce confidence. And so today we're going to see that truly understanding God's promises produces brave faithfulness. Truly understanding God's promises produces brave faithfulness. Now, one caveat as we get into the book of Joshua, because we have been previously studying the books of Colossians and Ephesians, 
And those were books written by the Apostle Paul to Christians in the first century. So when we were going through Ephesians, when we were going through Colossians, it was very easy in preaching through that to say, oh yeah, this applies to us directly and almost immediately. But now that ain't the case. The book of Joshua is predominantly narrative. And when it comes to narrative, we need to look at the story. And the story tells us something about God. But we can't get too nitpicky. If we get too nitpicky, just looking at an individual verse here and an individual verse there, we aren't really getting the meaning that the author gave to that book. And also, the book of Joshua records historical events that happened a long, long time ago in the ancient Near East. So there is a long track that we have to follow in really interpreting and understanding how that applies to us today sitting here in Hollis Center, Maine. Just as a, a recap, God called one man Abraham. He said, Abraham, I got a plan for you. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you into great people. Through that people, I'm going to bless all nations. Abraham had descendants who lived in the land. There was a famine. They went to Egypt. In Egypt, they grew and grew and grew, eventually became slaves. God raised up a man named Moses to deliver his people out of Egypt. They went through the wilderness. They came to the edge of the promised land, and they chickened out. They didn't trust God's promises. And so that generation then had to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years until they died off, and now we are at this point in Joshua where, where the next generation is at the edge of the land, and they're about to conquer it. That's where we're at. So Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 to start off, says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. So it's game time. It is time for the Israelites to go into the land that was promised to their forefathers and was promised to them. Moses has passed away, and it's interesting that phrase that Steve kind of touched on last week, servant of the Lord, servant of God. It's the same phrase that's refer used uh, to refer to King David. It's the same phrase that's used to refer to the prophets, and now Joshua is stepping into this role of being the servant of the Lord, the leader of God's people. And it's time to go across the river. God says, I am giving it to them in referencing the land. He says, every place that you go, I'm going to give it to you. He, he tells them there's boundaries on this. And then he says that I have given it to you. That's interesting. He says, I am giving it to you. And then he says, I have given it to you. Because the view we get in the Old Testament is that God is the landlord. He owns the land. He owns it all. He gives it to whomever he wills. And so in a sense, when he says, I am giving you the land or I'm going to give you the land, it's already theirs. It belongs to them because it is backed by God's promises. And yet, even though it's backed by God's promises, they still need to go into the land and take it. 
is kind of like a Christmas present, right? Someone buys a Christmas present for you. It belongs to you. It's yours. It has been promised to you. It's sitting under the tree, but now you need to go and claim it and unwrap it for it to be fully yours. That is the position that Israel is in here in the book of Joshua. They're going into a land. They're going into a land full of people who are under God's judgment because of their horrible, wicked practices such as child sacrifice and idolatry. Joshua is not free to do whatever he wants. God has given him specific parameters in how he is to lead the people. And he had already been appointed leader in Deuteronomy 31, if you remember back when we covered that. So verse 5 and 6 it says, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. That God says to Joshua, I am with you. I'm not going anywhere. I am by your He says, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. God is promising victory to Joshua as he goes and, and leads God's people to take what has already been given to them. And in light of this promise, in light of the fact that God would be with Joshua, he'd be right there with him, he says, be strong and courageous. Be steadfast. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear. Be faithful in the task that is ahead of you. And I can't help but think that Joshua is remembering an event that happened 40 years ago. Because 40 years ago, Joshua was one of the 12 spies that originally went into the land to scope it out. Joshua was there when him and Caleb were the only two spies that said, yes, we can take the land. Why? Because God's with us. The rest said, we can't do this. The people are too strong. And that generation failed. And so now Joshua is in the position of an elder, a leader, and he knows how much courage matters in the task that is ahead of them. He's not stepping into the unknown. He's been in this land before. Verses 7 and 8. Only be strong and courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So here we have this phrase again, be strong and courageous. But this time, it is referencing being obedient to God's law. Through Moses, God had given his Old Testament people, Israel, a beautiful document, a law that reflected God's character. He had given them a special way to live that would set them apart from the nations and draw them into relationship with their creator. And here God is saying, be faithful in it. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Obey my commandments. Meditate on them so that you would be careful to obey them. You know, have them in your mind. 
And when you do this, when you obey these commandments, you will have good success. You will be prosperous. This is where we today, as many of you are Christians in the 21st century, we need to be very careful in reading these verses because our situation is different than it was for these people that we're reading about. Because there are preachers out there that'll take verses like this and say, see, you play by the rules, you obey God's word, and you're gonna have lots of money, lots of fame, everything's gonna be great. And it don't work like that. It doesn't work like that. Israel had a special relationship with the land. And that this land was a, a promised estate that God had carved away for them. And it was a place where God was going to separate his people. And that in this land, they would have a special relationship with their creator. And if they continued to have that relationship with him through the law, of course God would prosper them. Of course God would prosper his people. Because God was preserving them so that he could bring the Messiah through them. Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but for us today, as Christians... Christ is our inheritance. There's, there's no physical land that is our inheritance. Christ is our inheritance. You know, for the people in Israel, they had conditions. It was if you're faithful, you get to stay in the land and prosper. If you are unfaithful, what happens? You lose the land. And we know historically that is exactly what happened, that the Israelites fell into idolatry, they rejected their creator, and they got carried off into captivity in Babylon. And before that, a larger chunk of them got taken out by the Assyrians. But for us today as Christians, Christ is our inheritance. We'll talk more about that soon. Verse 9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. There's that phrase again. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Notice once again that the courage that these people would have comes from knowing that God is with them, trusting in the promises of their creator. Now, in verses 10 and 11, there's kind of this cool, uh, almost Lord of the Rings-esque scene where Joshua gets to walk through the camp and be like, ready the troops, ready the provisions, right? Because they're, they're going. It's, it's game time. And then in verses 12 through 15, there's this little section that doesn't make much sense if we haven't remembered back when we were studying Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh remained true to their promise. Well, you say, who, who were those people? Those were a couple of the tribes that when they were in the wilderness, Israel had some dealings with these other nations that tried to wipe them out. And so they actually gained some territory. And these tribes said, hey, this land looks good to us. Can we have this land as our inheritance rather than land that's actually in the promised land across the river? And they were allowed to do that, but the condition was when the time came to take the promised land, they still had to go and help their brothers conquer that land. And they are being true to their word and they are swearing their fealty to Joshua. In verse 16, it says, And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you only. May the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. 
Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him, shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. I think that's really cool that for these people, they said, hey, we are with you 100%. Just one thing. God better be with you, and you better be strong and courageous. Truly understanding God's promises produces brave faithfulness. Truly understanding God's promises produces brave faithfulness. This summer, when we went on vacation, uh, Dorothy and I and Ellsworth, and we also had some other family members that came up and joined us off and on throughout the week, uh, we got to stay at a cabin that some friends of ours own up in the Rangeley Aquasic area, which for those of you that like the outdoors, Rangeley is like the coolest place to play around outdoors without going all the way up north, you know? It's only about like two and a half hours away. And so we're staying at this cabin, and my friend Rob, who owns the cabin, he gave me a boatload of instructions. He basically had me open my gazetteer and say, hey, you see this road? Follow that road. You get off this road. There's going to be a little dirt turnaround, or there's going to be this landmark, and you go down this off-road trail, and you go down here, and you go down to the river, and you cross the river in this place. And he would tell me these amazing fishing locations because he spent his entire lifetime exploring this area. He's been up every mountain. He's been to every body of water. He knows where the fish are. And so when Rob was giving me these instructions for, for places to fish, I went into these places with confidence because I knew what he was talking about. Like I knew that he knew what he was talking about. It wasn't like, oh, uh, I once stumbled upon this brook 20 years ago and there might be some fish in there. But it's like, no, he was here just a few months ago. He knows what he's talking about. And so it gave me confidence in my fishing expeditions while on vacation. I caught more brook trout than I think I have ever caught in my life on that trip in Rangeley and Aquasic. Why? Because I had good instructions from someone who was faithful, who knew what he was talking about, and therefore I was able to be brave and bold and have confidence in my fishing trips because I trusted Rob. In the same way, God's trustworthy promises should produce brave faithfulness in us. So here's the question, right? For Old Testament Israel, they were being given land. They would be given a very physical inheritance. Now the question is, are we as Christians conquering a physical inheritance that God has promised us? I'm seeing some head shaking in both directions because it's a trick question. Gotcha. It's a trick question. And you'll see why very soon. Are we as Christians conquering a physical inheritance that God has promised? The answer is sort of yes, but it's complicated. No, God has not said, hey, there's a certain tract of land that belongs to Christians. All Christians should go there, and you need to kill whoever is there. Okay? Like, there, it, we are not being called to a new crusade. Okay? Yes? Okay, I want to make sure. Right? There's no crusade that's going on. All right, no one's taking up arms and trying to, you know, purge Texas or do anything crazy like that, okay? There's no new crusade. Shouldn't have really been a crusade in the first place, but we don't want to get into that. 
Um, Second Corinthians six. Let's just read that. Second Corinthians six verses four through ten. Because Israel had this relationship with God where obedience would produce prosperity in the land, disobedience, their enemies would come in and conquer them. That their blessing was very much tied to obedience. And so this passage is very important for us to hear in the 21st century as Christians, and also for those of you that aren't Christians, that just kind of want to hear what Christianity is about. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 4 through 10. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. In afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. By truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters and yet are true. As unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich. And here's the one to pay extra attention to, as having nothing yet possessing everything. This is a picture of Christianity right here. And it isn't a picture of prosperity. That in reality, the Christian life is very often a life of suffering because God is calling his people to purity. That Jesus is changing the hearts of his people. And as his people are being changed by Jesus, they live differently. And very often the result in a culture that is against God is that Christians are hated for their righteousness. And yet these very same Christians that are hated by the people around them do not then turn and take up weapons against these people, but rather continue in faithful, patient endurance to love on these people and share the good news with these people. And therefore face imprisonments, beatings, killings, all sorts of awful things. Throughout human history, Christians have endured to share the good news of Jesus Christ with their enemies. The picture of God's people for us today is of purity and persecution, not prosperity. Now, the reason being is that we have a much better inheritance than a piece of land. And there actually is a physical component to that, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm getting excited again. Romans 8, verses 35 through 39 who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. There's that word, conquerors. Through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, 
nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That the conquering of the Christian life is not us taking up arms and claiming a piece of land, but is rather us faithfully enduring this life. Knowing that the love that God has shown to us in forgiving us, in adopting us, in changing us, that the love of Jesus cannot be taken away by any of these things. It can't be taken away. You know, every other possession we have can be taken away by fire, thieves, war, death. But Jesus can't be taken away from us. That inheritance is eternal. For us as human beings, we were made for relationship with our creator. That is our purpose. And yet we as a human race are fallen. And so we're trying to shove all sorts of different things into a God-sized heart, in our God-sized hole in our hearts. And guess what? It doesn't satisfy. Like we pursue prosperity, and yet even when people get it, it makes them miserable. Like why is that? Because we're not made for that. We're made for relationship with our creator. And unfortunately, we're sinners. We continually do the things that are against God's commandments. We continually break his heart and break his laws. And the good news of the Bible is that God himself, Jesus Christ, came down in human form, he suffered, he taught, he took the very wrath, the punishment that we deserve on himself, so that if we put our trust in him, we're forgiven. We don't have to face the wrath of God anymore. In fact, we receive his love, his forgiveness. We are welcomed as sons and daughters of the king. That Jesus' love is better than all physical belongings, all physical prosperities, fame, fortune, any of it, love, Jesus is better. And this is why throughout human history, Christians have a history of being willing to risk everything, risk their homes, risk their lives, risk their families, risk their health to tell others about Jesus, to be generous towards those in need, to care for their community, because we have a better inheritance. We have, a, we have a better inheritance. We got better things than 401ks and property or, or guns or, or any of the sort of things we cling on to and say, oh, here's something I can give to my kids. We got something way better that can't be taken away from us. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus, when he was leaving this earth, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, there's a promise there's a promise that Jesus is with us always to the end of this world, to the end of this age. And our marching orders, as we endure courageously through this life, 
are to teach other people about Jesus. Those are our marching orders. The last passage I want to touch down in, I know it's been kind of a sword drill today, is Revelation 21. Revelation 21. This is a vision that the Apostle John had. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And then I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Here in Revelation, we see that God is doing this just breathtaking work of making all things new in the end that there'll be a new heavens and a new earth, that there will be a new city, that all of the distance that we experience with God will be wiped away and that he will be with us and we will be with him. And all of the pain and all the sorrows and all the sufferings of this life, he will wipe those away because he is making all things new It's a beautiful image. And so there is, in a sense, a reality that is physical as part of our inheritance. There's a new earth coming, and there we get to dwell and reign with Christ. But ultimately, it's not about the land. It's about being with God. It's about being with our Creator. And being with the only one who can wipe away every tear and every pain and every sorrow from our hearts. The only one who can wipe away and cleanse every sin that we have committed. The only one who can make all things right. 
And so as we suffer for obeying Jesus, our brave endurance to the end of our lives and to the resurrection at the end of time is worth it. And that conquering is what brings an inheritance for us. To conquering that, that once again, there's that tension, right? Christ is the one who saves us. He's the one who forgives us. And yet in that, we have a part to play. Not necessarily a part to play in our salvations, but we have a, a role of a responsibility in enduring through this life to the end. And we know that that's backed by God's promises so we can proceed courageously through this life. Truly understanding God's promises produces brave faithfulness. And I'm sure for some of you right now, even in your own minds, you're starting to think through the implications of that. That is the way I'm living truly reflecting the inheritance that I have in Christ, or am I simply living for physical inheritances? So what, what do we do? What do we do? Well, as people, unfortunately, we are often in the business of building a God to suit our own desires. We're often in the business of building a God to suit our own goals in life. This is why I think one of the reasons that so often we open this book and we find a verse that we like and we just rip it out of context and apply it to our lives because we so desperately want God to bless our plans. And yet what God really wants to do is he wants to give us his truth and give us a new plan and give us a new perspective. So here, I think, is the question we should ask ourselves. What has God really promised for those who belong to Jesus? Not what do I think God has promised those who belong to Jesus, or not what do I feel God has promised to Christians, but rather, based on what God has said, what has he promised to those who are in Jesus Christ? And then, in response to that truth, we walk in it boldly. We walk with, give you an example, two examples, actually, in Matthew 6. We're not going to turn there, but you actually feel free to turn there just to make sure I'm properly representing the passage. But in Matthew chapter 6, there are three promises related to money. There's a promise that if we are secretive in our generosity, that we are not being generous to be seen by others, which just drives me nuts nowadays, Pretty much everyone just gives to homeless people so they can make a YouTube video about it. But what Matthew 6 tells us is that, no, if you are secretive in your generosity, that is something that God will reward. That's one promise. There's also a promise there that when we are generous, we are storing up our treasure in heaven. Where neither must, my tongue is tied today. Where neither rust or, or mildew or mold or fire or any of this gross stuff that happens in this life, it can't touch it. Can't touch it. So, promise one, right, is that God rewards our gen secret generosity. Promise two is that is that we can actually lay up treasures in heaven versus just storing, up, storing them up in this world where they get destroyed, they get put in a storage unit, and then our kids sell them at a yard sale. And number three is actually more of a warning promise, and that is 
where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That there's a connection between our heart and how we use our physical belongings, how we store up things for ourselves. Now, I find that passage in general very convicting because I like my stuff. And I like to spend money on me. And I definitely could be more generous. And so if I find myself in a place in life where I am not courageously, boldly risking my physical belongings by giving generously to the church and giving generously to those who are needy, if I find myself grasping rather than giving, I'm not trusting this promise. I'm not trusting that in reality I can take my physical belongings and I can give them and therefore store up riches in heaven. I'm not trusting it if I find myself stingy. Now there's also a section in Matthew chapter 6 about anxiety and being anxious. Jesus is talking about worry. And in essence, what Jesus says is we don't need to worry about our physical belongings. We don't need to worry about provision. Okay, where are my clothes going to come from? Where's my food going to come from? How are the bills going to be paid? We don't need to worry about those things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. That if we put the kingdom first, we put Jesus first, we seek to obey him, God's going to take care of us. And yet, what do we often worry about? Those very same things, right? Are the bills going to be paid? Where am I going to get my clothing, my food, or, or whatever needs we think we have in our lives? And we're complex people. Sometimes our needs, or at least the things we think we need, are very complex. And the reality is, that if we put the kingdom first, we put Jesus first, God's going to take care of us. So if I find myself in a place in life where I'm worrying over the physical things of this life, if I'm worrying over my provision, if I, it's probably because I have this view in my mind that I'm the only one who provides for anything and it's all on me. And that's not true. I'm not believing the promise. Truly understanding God's promises produces brave faithfulness. We have to come back to the promise and ask ourselves, if this promise is true, how should I live? If this promise is true, how should I live? And this is a question that some of you might need to ask in general just about the Bible. For some of you that are questioning, for some of you that are seeking, if the Bible is true, how should I live? Because that passage in Revelation is a great comfort to some of us, but it is also a great warning to many. And that if we continue to refuse the hand of our creator who wants to forgive us and welcome us and wipe away the tears, if we continually swat aside the hand of the God who wants to wipe away our tears, in the end, we will find ourselves in a place where there is no consolation for our pain. If that is true, how should you live? If that is true, how should you respond? And the reality for all of us is that Jesus is the difference maker. He is God himself. He's the proof that God's promises are true. He rose from the dead. And so let us trust him more deeply. Let us trust him more deeply. 
and be strong and courageous till the end. Truly understanding God's promises produces brave faithfulness. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I pray that you would bring our minds, our hearts, ourselves to a place of peace in this moment. I pray that you would bring us to a place where we can contemplate your word and respond to your truth. I pray in this moment, in response to your word, that you would remind each and every one of us of promises that you have given that we have forgotten or ignored. And as these promises come to mind, as these promises from your word return to our minds and our thoughts, Lord, how should we live in light of these promises? Maybe you're leading some to generosity. Or you're leading some to share the truth with others. Or restructuring their lifestyle to honor you or abandoning sinful behavior, Lord. I just pray for everyone in this room who is in you that you would remind them of those promises that they have neglected or forgotten. You remind them of what it would look like to live in light of those promises. Lord, help us be strong and courageous in these things. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, today is the first Sunday of the month. And so this is the time of the month where we celebrate the Lord's table also known as communion. This is a, a powerful symbol of the Christian church. It is a symbol for those who are followers of Jesus. So if you have not put your trust in Jesus, please do not partake in this symbol. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Jesus is talking about communion, the Lord's Supper. And Paul is relaying the account of this to a church. And Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That what we are about to partake in reminds us of the promise. That what we remember as a shadow and a symbol now will one day be full and complete. If you have one of these little hourglass things, you can, you can open the top of that. Take out the, the cracker. This represents Jesus' body that was broken on the cross. And as we all partake of this, and in fact, as many churches across the world partake in this, some at this same moment, we need to remember that we are also one body, 
Christ is the head and we are his body. So let's remember Christ's suffering and let us remember the body of Christ together. Let's take this in remembrance of him. And verse 25 says, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. We are under a new covenant. We, we do not have the same relationship as God's people in the Old Testament did. We don't have a land that's tied to our obedience. We don't have blessings tied to our obedience. Rather, in the new covenant, we have received all of the blessings of God and will receive all the blessings of God because of Christ's faithfulness, not our own. That Jesus bled for us so that we could experience the full blessings of our creator. Let's drink this in remembrance of Jesus. Lord, thank you for remembrance. And thank you for your word. Lord, in all the truth that has been spoken in this service, from your word and from songs that reflect your word, I pray you help all of these listeners today to cling to what is good and what is true. And Lord, the elements of this service that, that were just a product of our humanity, and our faults and my faults. Lord, I pray that those would, would fade away, but that your truth would stick with everyone here and it would change us. In the powerful name of Jesus, I pray, amen.